So my grandfather, Lou Terreri, is dying. He's 92, and a couple weeks ago, my father moved him into a nursing home in Buffalo, New York, where uh, we're from. I have seen my grandfather probably six times my whole life. He left my father and my grandmother and my father's three brothers when my dad was in his early 20s. And Lou is a very selfish man. And his whole life has been about him. Sometimes at funerals, we say things about people that aren't necessarily the whole truth. We try to paint people in the best possible light. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just not saying that's, I'm just saying that that's not always reality, the nice things we say during eulogies. Admittedly, I haven't felt much as my grandfather is dying. I feel bad for my father as he watches a man die who was supposed to be a major part of his life and ended it up betraying him and abandoning him and in no way demonstrating what a godly man looks like. Death has this way of focusing us on what's important. And yet, when I look at Lou, he still hasn't gotten it. My father has shared Christ with him, pleaded with him to repent of his sin and turn to Christ. And he says things like, I don't have any sin. Just because someone is dying doesn't mean what's important in life immediately comes into focus. Sometimes when people are dying, they stay the same. Maybe you've seen someone die and it hasn't been a beautiful thing. When Christians die, it's beautiful. When the lost die, it's tragic. I don't have a lot of good things to say about my grandfather. The story doesn't end with, but hey, here's this really cool thing that happened. Nope, I could take you to his room right now and he might not even remember my name. So the question for you and for me this morning is how are you planning to die? I know you didn't want to think about that today. I know that you didn't show up in this place thinking, oh my goodness, I hope when I get there we get to talk about death. But that's what we're going to talk about today. But we're not going to talk about the act of dying. We're going to talk about what's important in our living so that when we get to the moment of our death, our living was not wasted. In the life of Joseph that we've been looking at, we've been studying mostly lessons that come from Joseph's life. But today we're going to look at the longest deathbed scene in Scripture, Joseph's father, Jacob. And we're going to discover that in Jacob's life, he knew how to die well. His life was 
not always very clean and tidy and what we would consider very Christian, but his faith in his dying moments was strong. And today, as we look at Jacob, the opposite of what I would describe about my grandfather, we see a man who is concerning himself with leaving a legacy to the next generation of faith. We're going to pick up our study of Joseph in Genesis chapter 48. If you were here last week, you know that we studied chapter 45, so some of you might be wondering what happened to 46 and 47. Well, for the sake of time, and so we are not in the series till Jesus comes back. Um, we're just going to focus on 48 today. You're like, well, what happened in 46 and 47? You can read that in your copy of the scriptures. Here's the highlights. Joseph moved down, or excuse me, Jacob moved down to Egypt. He was reunited with Joseph. And in chapter 47, Joseph continues to do some amazing things to help Egypt not go under during a famine. And then also chapter 47 talks about Jacob and his sons settling in the land of Goshen, which was the farmland of Egypt, because Jacob and his sons were shepherds, and it also provided an opportunity for Jacob and his sons not to become Egyptianized in the urban center of Egypt, and so Jacob's sons and daughters would not marry Egyptian women. So there's a reason why they settled in Goshen. But in Genesis 48 and 49, we pick up the story of Jacob on his deathbed. And we're only going to read chapter 48 today. And this is what it says. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. And there he blessed me and said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples and I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. So I need to explain what's happening here. Jacob on his deathbed, Joseph hears his father Ill, is ill. He comes to see his father and he brings his two sons with him. And what we're seeing here is Jacob about to adopt Manasseh and Ephraim into the family. And what's interesting here is that as Jacob is adopting Manasseh and Ephraim, he says that they're going to become his sons just like Reuben and Simeon is his sons. But here's what's really hard to see in the Hebrew when it gets translated into English. What's actually happening is not only is Jacob adopting Joseph's sons, he is also giving them the blessing of the firstborn son. Reuben, or excuse me, Ephraim and Manasseh are displacing Reuben and Simeon as the firstborn. So in a family like this, the firstborn son would receive a double 
blessing. There was something to about being the firstborn. And so what Jacob says is, Reuben, I'm no longer going to consider the firstborn. And Simeon, I'm no longer going to consider the firstborn. Now the blessing of the firstborn will rest on Manasseh and on Ephraim. And you're like, Joe, that's a lot to get from verse 5. Well, it goes into more detail. If you want to read about it in First Chronicles chapter 5, it describes this in detail. But that's what's happening here. This is all the information we have. But here's kind of something beautiful and tragic that happens at the same time. Jacob adopts Joseph's sons, and Reuben and Simeon are no longer considered blessed as the firstborn. You're like, well, why did Jacob decide to do that? Well, Reuben, he had a really shining moment when he slept with one of Jacob's wives. That'll make your dad mad. And then Simeon murdered an entire village of men. And so Jacob chooses to bless Joseph's sons as the firstborn. So here's the adoption ceremony, starting in verse 8. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, who are these? So think of like a minister standing before a church uh, during a wedding ceremony, and the father walks the bride down the aisle, and he says, who gives this woman to be married to this man? Like the minister already knows the answer to that, the question. You understand that? This is what Jacob is doing here. Who are these? They are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, bring them to me so I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees. And if you're like, well, who's Israel? Israel and Jacob are the same person. Their names are used interchangeably. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. I mean, even Joseph, the second most powerful man in Egypt, showing his father just a deep respect. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left towards Israel's right hand, and he brought his sons close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger, and crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Okay, so, so, so this is what's happening, something like this. And you're like, why does that matter? Because Joseph was trying to get his older son, Manasseh, to receive the double blessing of the firstborn. Because Manasseh was older. And so he lines up Manasseh with Jacob's right hand. And whoever got the right hand laid on them and blessed by the right hand, that was the stronger hand. And that was where the double blessing was. But Jacob, old trickster Jacob, even in his dying moments, he pulls the old switcheroo. Joseph's like, you bless my older son first, so I'm going to put him on your right hand, and then you bless my younger son with your left hand, and Jacob says, this is how it's going to be. The younger is going to be greater than the older. Verse 15, then he blessed Joseph and said, just so you know, when Jacob is giving the blessing to Manasseh and Ephraim, ultimately, he's blessing Joseph. 
May the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they greatly and may they increase greatly upon the earth. Now Joseph is going to have a bit of a freak out moment. Watch this. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's. Dad, don't do that. Joseph said, no, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son. I know. I know that you're expecting what's culturally and socially acceptable to happen in this moment, but that's not how I feel God leading me. He too will become a people, and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, In your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, I am about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you as one who is over your brothers, I give the ridge of land I took from the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Let's pray. Father, our lives are temporary. We're getting older. We will not be here forever. Even if we're young, the years will fly by. Anyone in this room who's older can share that with those of us who are younger. Lord, we don't have all the time in the world. We have today. We have this life. And Lord, we want our lives to count. And we want to leave something to those who will come after us. And so God, may we draw from Jacob's life what's important when we're living so we know what's important when we're dying. Come Lord and be our teacher today. We need you. In your name I pray. Amen. Here's a big idea today. It's this. If you know what's important when you're dying, you'll know what's important when you're living. If we can get to the place where we know what will be important on our deathbed, we will know what's important when we're here as strangers and aliens on earth. I hope that your last moment I hope that your deathbed will not be scrambling and wondering if you have left anything with your life. But what's interesting is that when we talk about things like leaving a legacy, sometimes it feels like, oh, only people who are powerful or only people who are really smart, only people who have managed their money well, only people who have much, those are the only people who can live a legacy, or excuse me, leave a legacy. But what we see in Jacob's life is a different kind of legacy, a godly legacy that every, every single person in this room 
can live in this way so that when you are dead, people can say good things about you at your funeral that are true and not made up. So how do you leave a legacy of faith with your life? How do you know what's important when you're living so that when you're dying, you know you didn't waste your life? Here's the first thing we see in Jacob's life. First way to leave a legacy of faith with your life, it's this. Generously give grace to those around you. Be known as a person of incredible grace to your loved ones. You're like, I didn't even read the word grace in that passage. How can you say that leaving a legacy is about grace? There's two examples in particular where we see Jacob acting in just incredible grace towards his grandsons. The first is this, Manasseh and Ephraim. Do you know who their dad was? Joseph, a Hebrew, a full-blooded Hebrew. Do you know who their mom was? A woman named Azanath. She was Egyptian. Her father's and her grandfather and her great-grandfather were all pagan priests. And so you have Manasseh and Ephraim standing before Jacob as half-breeds. Like when you talk about the promises and the covenant that God has made, Jacob is saying to Joseph's sons, even though you're not fully Israelite, you're welcome in the family of God. The covenant applies to you. See, what is grace? Grace is outsiders like you and I becoming insiders in the family of God. People who are acting graciously to those around them are constantly looking out for people who are on the outside and trying to help them come in to the inside. See, the kingdom of God is not a club for the up-and-comers. The kingdom of God is for all people, people with the wrong background, the wrong story, the wrong bloodline. You know what I love about Christianity? There's not a bloodline attached to it that you have to be in order to fit in. Actually, there is a bloodline. His name is Jesus, his bloodline. And you get brought into the family of God through faith in Jesus. You don't need to know a special language. You don't need to be born in a certain town. There's not a, a system of hierarchy that you have to kind of work your way through in order to move up the ladder. You're in when you come to Christ. He is the doorway to the kingdom of God. He is the doorway to relationship with God. And he says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Here's a second example. When Jacob sensed God leading him to switch hands and bless Ephraim, the younger, ahead of Manasseh, the older brother, Jacob is telling us something about how God's grace works. Grace isn't given to those because of their birth order, their social status, or their racial purity, because grace is a gift. God's blessing doesn't come to you because of who you are. God's blessing comes to you because of whose you are. The blessings of God, the grace of God is a gift that cannot be earned. And when the younger serves the older, it's a signal to all of us that the kingdom of God works in an upside-down kind of way. 
It's not about cultural acceptability and social mores. It's about grace and election and mercy and welcoming all into the family of God because grace is always a gift. It's interesting to ask the question, how could Jacob be a person at the end of his life who was willing to generously give grace to those around him? There's this thing he says in his prayer in Genesis, uh, go back to the last one. There's this thing that he says in Genesis 48, 16, when Jacob is blessing Joseph's sons, he talks about the angel who has delivered me from all harm. May he bless these boys. And some of us, you need to read this and be like, well, who's the angel? Are we supposed to pray to angels? No, you're not supposed to pray to angels. Good, we got that cleared up. Who's the angel, though? When Jacob says, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, the angel that Jacob is referring to is the angel of the Lord. And you're like, who's the angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord is this mysterious figure that shows up in certain Old Testament stories. And what a lot of Bible scholars believe, and I believe it too, is that the angel of the Lord is actually an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament before he came to earth. Now, every time the Old Testament says angel, it's not like, oh, there's Jesus. No, no, it's the angel of the Lord. That's Jesus. There's other angels in the Old Testament. We're not talking about Jesus. But when the angel of the Lord shows up, we see this mysterious appearance of of Jesus. The second member of the Trinity showing up in the Old Testament. And what does Jacob say that this angel has done for him? Delivered him from all harm. That word delivered in Hebrew is actually redeemed. Jacob says, the angel redeemed me. God has taken care to get me out of all kinds of trouble. God has rescued me. So Jacob, as he looks over the past of his life, and there's some really dark moments, there's some moments that aren't pretty, there's some moments that Jacob wouldn't want you to see on the screen this morning. Jacob looks over his life and he says, God has always shown me grace and gotten me out of my troubles. So when you know your life story is grace, grace becomes a worldview. When you've been on the receiving end of God's grace, you will be a person who is growing in grace towards those around you. Gracious people are always going to make an impact for good and for the kingdom of God and for the name of Jesus Christ on those around them. What are some ways that we can be the kind of people who generously show grace to those around us? We can be forgiving people. We can be people who don't hold grudges. We don't nurse bitterness like a child that we're trying to raise up and get strong in our hearts. When grace has changed our lives, we have a keen eye for people who are outsiders. We look for ways to make people on the fringes feel included. When grace is changing our lives, we freely show our affection to those around us. When grace is changing our lives, we're using our words, what comes out of our mouths, not to tear people down, but to build them up, to speak words of life and encouragement into their soul. Man, I have this thought. Do people around you know how you feel about them? Man, when's the last time you just spoke to someone and just told them how much they meant to you? Even in the midst of like when you know people really well, you know that they have problems and you know that they're broken and you know that they're a big piece of work. 
Like that's what happens when you get close to people. You find out, oh, here's another fractured human being who's kind of a jerk also. And you know what grace does? It says, man, I see the good in you. I see what Jesus is doing in your life. I see the potential of who you can become. Yeah, I know you got this stuff going on. But man, I know God is working in your life. And you mean the world to me. I'm celebrating the work of God in your being. When we're being changed by grace, we're patient with the weaknesses of others. Oh, man, I got convicted of this this week. Man, sometimes we just want people to get it, don't we? Sometimes what we really want is people to be more like us. Man, if that person was more like me, they'd be having a better day. Their life would be so much better. And then the people who really know me are like, no, Joe, no one who's like you is going to be doing that much better. But listen, people of grace understand that as we're on this journey, we all have issues. We all have struggles. And it's not a, oh, we all have issues, you're fine. No, no, we challenge each other. We love each other. We call people to higher living, to more faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And yet, we love people for where they're at, not where we think they should be. When we're growing in grace, we work at becoming self-forgetful. When we're growing in grace, we believe the best about people, not the worst. We don't assume on their motives. When we're growing in grace, we give lots of second chances. I mean, Jacob, his life was about second chances. All of the ways he had failed God, and yet God affirmed his promise to him at the end of his life. You want to leave a legacy with your life? Generously give grace to those around you. Here's the second thing. Model your own need for grace. Model your own need for the grace of God. Jacob says this when he's blessing the sons. He says, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. So this is the first time in the Bible God is referred to as a shepherd. This metaphor of God as a shepherd and his people as sheep is common throughout the entire Bible. One that Jesus uses to describe our relationship with him. Jesus is the shepherd and we are his sheep. But because none of us are shepherds, if you're a shepherd, I'm sorry, I just don't think anyone here is a shepherd. If you're a shepherd, see me after, you can tell me if I'm getting this right. But because we're not shepherds, we, this kind of goes right over our head. But there's a minister who kind of had this insight into what sheep are like because he was a shepherd before he was a pastor and it says this and just remember if God is a shepherd we're a sheep and this is what he says about sheep a sheep is a stupid animal we're just talking about you you're like oh I'm offended no you're not you're fine a sheep is a stupid animal sheep follow one another and lose their sense of direction continually in a way that cats and dogs do not Even when they are found, they are not happy to be found. It is extremely difficult to round up a lost sheep and bring it home unless you have a very big dog to scare it. A lost sheep rushes to and fro, so here's what you have to do. You must seize it, cast it down, tie its four legs together, and carry it home struggling. That's you. That's me. 
Some of us are like, oh, God found me and I was just so ready for him. Wrong, you weren't. You were running from him. Oh, I'm just so faithful to the Lord. No, you're prone to wander. All of us have that running tendency in us. All of us were found as lost sheep. And for some of us, we know what it's like for the Lord to wrestle us to the ground and tie us up and say, you're on my team whether you like it or not. So when Jacob calls God his shepherd, what is he doing? He's admitting he's a sheep. He doesn't say, God is my zookeeper and I am his lion. Some of us are like, I'm strong and victorious and courageous and ferocious. No, you're a sheep. Here's the thing about a lion. If a lion gets away from its zookeeper, it goes and kills people. And it eats horses and it's going to be fine. It's going to survive just fine. But if a sheep gets away from its shepherd, it's going to die fast. Jacob is admitting that he is completely dependent on God for everything. All of his days he has needed the loving, round-the-clock care of God. He is embracing his identity as a sheep. Jesus does not come to his friends as a personal assistant or a therapist or a life coach or a cheerleader or someone who makes suggestions. He comes to us as our shepherd. John 10, 14 through 15, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me just as my father knows me and I know the father. And then Jesus says, so I sacrifice my life for the sheep. You and I are woefully needy. If we stray from the shepherd, we are going to die. We need grace. We need grace. Jerry Bridges put it this way about our need for grace. He says, our worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace, and your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. This is our lives. All is grace. So what does this have to do with Jacob? It has to do with this, that when you admit to those around you that you are a sheep, you are admitting that God is your shepherd. And you are revealing to those around you just how needy you are. You may be different than me, but for me, when people tell stories of how God met them in their failures, I'm far more encouraged. I'm impressed when people tell me how God met them in their victories but I'm encouraged and I'm blessed and I'm built up when people tell me how God met them in their failures. So I have this scar on my finger. I can still see it. It's right here. We don't, if we had cameras, I'd do a close-up and you'd be so impressed. So I have this scar on my finger and it's been there for probably 18 years maybe a little bit less. When I was a teenager, I was trying to cut through something with a pair of scissors that needed more than a pair of scissors. It needed a saw, but I wasn't that smart. And so as I was kind of like wrestling this thing with the pair of scissors, the scissors slipped off the object and I cut a part of my finger like just wide open and it was bad. But there's a scar there to remind me of my stupidity. 
And you know, my son Joseph, he's this big eight-year-old kid, happy kid, strong, growing. But when I see Joseph with his shirt off, he's got a scar right down the middle of his chest. It's lighter than the other skin on his chest. And it reminds me of something. It reminds me that when Joseph was born and he had heart surgery, that he had to get opened up and repaired and fixed. But that scar is still there to remind me of a battle that Jesus Christ won for our family. And you know what I love about that scar? It's a memory of the faithfulness of God. And you know what I know about the scars in your life? The things that you don't want people to know about you in your past? If you're a follower of Jesus, those scars are a ministry to other people. If you're willing to admit that you're a sheep and that God has met you in your failure, you're going to relieve the pressure all of us feel to have it all together. See, when you're a person who opens up your life and says, listen, I have this scar here, but God met me in that place of failure, and he did his work, and he patched me up, and he healed me. That's a ministry. And yet, for some of us, we are content to pervert the story of our lives that everything is always great all the time and that we are more put together than we actually are. But here's the reality about you because it's the reality about me. People are far more encouraged when we share how God has met us in our failures because they can identify with your failures far more than they can your successes. John Maxwell said, when someone asked, what have you learned from your successes in life? He said, far less than I've learned from my failures. So listen, you've got a story, and it's not pretty. It's not neat and tidy. We're not going to put it on a flannel graph in Sunday school and said, do this, kids. But as you share your story, and you share how God has met you in your pain, you begin to reveal that the kingdom of God is not a place for the put together. It's a place for those who are broken and who need the healing touch of a savior. It's a place for the ashamed and the guilt-ridden. It's a place for those who feel out of place. It's a place for those where people can come clean about who they really are and experience the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus Christ. I'm all for celebrating the victories of what God has done. I'm also all for revealing our scars and modeling our own need for grace. Because you know what? On your deathbed, people don't need to know you're a champion. They need to know that God was real in your life, not just in your mountaintop experiences, but in the valleys. Those are far more encouraging than the big stories. Last thing, I'm running out of voice, so this will be short. Third thing, <clears throat> declare your confidence in the promises of God. You want to leave a legacy with your life, 
Not only should you give grace away freely to those around you, model your own need for grace, but declare your confidence in the promises of God. Then Israel said to Joseph, I am about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. So here's what's amazing about what Jacob is saying. He's saying that God has made me some promises that I have not seen yet. God told me I was going to become a great nation. God told me I was going to possess the promised land. God told my father Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his bloodline. Because of Jacob's faith in God's promises, some of his last words to Joseph were a declaration that Egypt was temporary. It wasn't where the Israelites were destined to settle. Sure, Goshen was nice, but it wasn't the promised land. Though Jacob knew his days were numbered, he knew the plan and promises of God extended beyond his lifespan. Sometimes, maybe you're like me, we have a tendency to think of God's plan only in relation to ourselves. But God is doing so much more just beyond your lifespan. There's something beautiful and profound about a dying man telling his son what God is going to do in the future, even if he's not around to see it. There were a lot of people in the Bible who had tremendous, world-shaking faith, but never got to see the fulfillment of God's promises. Like, there's people who had amazing faith in God about what he could do, but they never saw him do it. Hebrews chapter 11, 13 through 16 speaks about these people, specifically the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is what the author of Hebrews says, all these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Faith that pleases God Faith that you can pass on to those who will come after you means believing God for things that you may never see on this side of eternity. The very nature of trusting God with your life is expecting Him to do the unseen, even if you're not around to see it. This is what Jacob and the other patriarchs did. They welcomed the promises of God from a distance. They knew that the promises of God for a homeland wasn't limited to a landmass in Canaan, but rather the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises were going to be experienced in the heavenly city. Do you understand what the author of Hebrews is saying? These men weren't just looking for God to establish his people in the landmass that we know as Israel. The promises of God extended beyond that. 
they were greater than a piece of land. These men were looking for a heavenly city. They knew that this life would never unveil all that God has in store for us. This should give us pause this morning. Are we the kind of people whose faith is limited by what we see? Are we the kind of people who put God on our timetable? Are we the kind of people who are expecting this world to satisfy us in ways that it can't? Are we looking beyond the fray, brokenness, and darkness of our world, knowing that our world is broken and sin is having its way, it seems? But do you have the faith to believe that a better day is coming? That the morning star will rise? Are your hopes and dreams wrapped up in a bigger paycheck or the city of God? Are you living as a stranger and nomad on earth or are you doing everything you can to fit in and make this heaven? Do people around you see that you have rejected earth as your home and your real citizenship is in eternity with Jesus Christ? Are we declaring to the next generation what we believe even though it hasn't happened yet? Listen, the things that Jacob and Abraham and Isaac were hoping for happened. God did establish them in the land. God did make them a great nation. God did bless the world through Abraham's line in Jesus Christ. And I was thinking this week, it's like, what is it for us? What promise of God do we need to declare to the people around us that we have not yet seen? I'm sure there are many, but there is one that stood out to me like a sore thumb, and it is this, that Jesus Christ will return. He is coming back again. And you know what? To the world, that sounds foolish. It sounds silly. And to organize your life and spend your money and time and friendships around the idea that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings, though he cannot be seen with human eyes, only discerned with a spiritual heart. Do you believe that Jesus Christ will return? And is it changing the way you live? Are you confident in the promise of God that Jesus will come again? Are you confident that God has gone, or Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you. A place for you. That you know that this life is not all that there is. And some of you are like, yes, I know that. I know you know it, but are you living as though it's true? Because declaring your confidence in the promises of God is not just something we do with our mouths. It's something we live with our lives. And that will go to the next generation in power when they see that we are not consumed with becoming more successful Americans, but we are consumed with becoming more obedient subjects in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That is how we declare our confidence that God's word will not return empty to us. Friend, if you know what's important when you're dying, you will know what's important when you're living. And I would just ask you very simply today, 
do you know what's important? Are your priorities in the right place? Are you growing in the grace of God? Are you a pretender? Or are you vulnerable and authentic about your need for Jesus? Are you trying to cling to the things of this world? Are you looking for the next thing to make you happy? Or are you finding your satisfaction daily being renewed in your relationship with Christ? Here's three things you can do to put this message into practice so that you don't just hear it and go home and forget. Three things. Number one, show someone grace each day this week. Show a loved one, a coworker, someone you meet at the grocery store, just every day this week, when you wake up, just say, Lord, I just want to live as a gracious person today. Show me someone who just needs to communicate, needs to be communicated your love today. And Lord, just use me to show the grace of God to them. Here's the second thing. Share a story of how God's grace met you when you failed. This is a great thing to do in your small groups this week. It's an awesome thing. That's why we're in community with one another, to encourage one another and to say, I have places that Jesus needs to do work in also. And we build one another up and we encourage each other as we're in community. Maybe you need to share the story with someone who's just feeling so down. Maybe someone will come to you this week and just say, my life is a wreck. And you can say, let me tell you when my life was a wreck and how Jesus Christ met me there. Don't be ashamed of your story. Tell it often. Tell it regularly. Tell it to your kids. Tell it to your spouse. Tell it to waiters and waitresses. Tell it to your neighbors. Tell it to your family. Your wounds will be a blessing to many. Here's the third thing. Evaluate what you're living for. Evaluate what you're living for. Just take a little inventory about your life. Think about what you're worrying about most. Think about what your daydreams are about. Look at your calendar, how you're spending your time. Look at your bank statement, where your money's going. What are you living for? Are you welcoming the heavenly city in the distance? Or are you trying to create heaven on earth and being distracted by the things of this world, wanting more money, more power, more success? Where are your priorities at? This morning, before we leave, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, that's where right priorities begin, in a relationship with Jesus. And Jesus Christ is for you. And Jesus Christ is gracious. And Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin. He rose again so that you can have new life. Jesus Christ offers forgiveness. He offers eternal life. And he also is a shepherd who calls us to follow him. Jesus Christ isn't interested in religion. He's not interested in you becoming more religious. He's interested in total authority and leadership over your life. He's looking for you to surrender your life to him. 
He loves you. He wants good for you. Give your life to Jesus Christ today if you haven't already. It's a simple prayer. You ask him to come in. You surrender to him. Or maybe you're here and you're like, I'm kind of like sort of a Christian. There's no sort of a Christian. Maybe for some of you, it's time to get serious about a relationship with God. Yeah, you've been here, you've sat in the rows, you like a sermon, or maybe you don't. Maybe you like the people, maybe you like the community, maybe you like the smiling faces, maybe you like free coffee. But the life of faith is not a life of casual observance of some religious practices. Jesus Christ says, follow me. Are you growing in obedience? to Jesus. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we're dying. Maybe not in the way a hospice worker would describe dying, but Lord, we're dying. Our bodies are growing older. Time is passing. And Lord, we're going to die and be known for something. Lord, I pray for us as a church that if we know what's important on the day of our death, Lord, that you would burn into our hearts what's important when we're living. I pray that we would be people of radical grace. I pray that we would be people who are humble and we share how you are changing us. I pray that we would be deeply committed followers of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would remain faithful to you, faithful that we believe that what your word says is true, that we would not falter, and that our lives would declare that we're confident that you are who you say you are. God, go with us today. We need you. We love you. We long for you. Strengthen us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you today.